HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and uh, I am thrilled to have with me in the studio, which hardly ever happens anymore, but in the studio with me is the wonderful and uh, groundbreaking Frances Moore-Lapay. She is, in case you've never heard of her, which is hard to imagine, is the author or co-author of at least 18 books, including the three million copy Diet for a Small Planet, which came out in 1971, right? Um, I remember when it came out because I'm the right age. Um, Francis was named by the Gourmet Magazine as one of 25 people, including Thomas Jefferson, Upton Sinclair, and Julia Child, whose work has changed the way America eats. And that was certainly true in the 70s. Uh, Her most recent work and the subject of our show today is World Hunger, 10 Myths which she and her co-author Joseph Collins co-wrote. Um, just the, it's just publishing this month from Grove Atlantic. She is also the co-founder of three organizations, including the Oakland-based think tank Food First, and most recently, the Small Planet Institute, which she leads with her daughter, Anna LaPay, another um, groundbreaker in this field. Frances and her daughter have also co-founded the Small Planet Fund, which channels resources to democratic social movements worldwide. And you can learn more about Frances and about the smallplanet.org at their website, smallplanet.org. So Frances, welcome to the show, first of all, and thank you so much for coming out to the studio. That's just such a treat. Well, what a treat for me. Oh my gosh. I mean, to well, actually have lunch I just <laughs> Yeah, right. And Francis got to eat at Roberta's, Whoa. of course, which uh, let me just say to anybody else who wants to be a guest on this show, that is kind of a draw, getting to eat at one of the best restaurants in New York. Um, so um, so World Hunger 10 Myths is actually an update. Uh, no, of, no, 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 no. It's okay. It's a completely new book. It's, it's a new go- book. You published World Hunger 12 Myths in 1977. This is a completely new book. Why did you decide to write a new book about because the world has changed so much. And, and this book, I, I really think it's reached people who didn't know a lot about this. And I felt mm-hmm. just absolutely obligated to make it 
alive for the 21st century. So, but it is we 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 just we work so hard on it that we don't want people to call it an update. Just call it an update. It, no, no, no. It is a new book. So you address different issues because of the change in the times since 1977, which for those of us who remember it, you know, is pretty profound. The way the world has changed is really extraordinarily enormous. Yeah, I don't know whether we've been more struck by how much has changed or how much has not changed, but both uh, both really urged our consciousness to write this book. Obviously, the, some of the big things that weren't on the map when the last rewrite was done in the 90s is, you know, genetically modified organisms right. and the awareness of the impact of climate change on agriculture and effect of agriculture on climate change. So all of that has changed, and hopefully Joe and I have both gotten better at explaining what is the root of all of this. And and what else has changed is that we have so much more evidence of what does work than yeah. we did 20 years ago, vastly more evidence of solutions. Well, 20 years ago, uh, you know, the idea that uh, industrial agriculture was not necessarily the best thing that could ever happen to the planet wasn't, wasn't even really considered by the mainstream, I think. It was more sort of forward thinkers like yourself who was already, you know, connecting with the idea that growing food on an industrial scale and the impact on water and on animals and so forth was maybe, and on people, was maybe not the best way to, go, to continue. Yeah, no, it's, and, it's a, there's a lot more awareness, definitely more awareness, and the both and here is that yet the, the concentration of resources in a certain direction that is life-destroying has intensified because yeah. we're not looking I, I like to spell out in this conversation is that we're still looking at the world through a false lens of disassociated parts instead of as we now know hey we're all connected in systems and they're <laughs> so much depends on what are the driving forces of that entire system we have to look at yeah and that's really what we try to bring down to earth in this new book. Well, I really, I, I really appreciated that sense of, of sort of knitting it all into a whole and pointing, I mean, your points about um, disassociating uh, agriculture from other systems, whether they're environmental or whether it's other animals and plants, flora and fauna, uh, or even the people who are growing food, that this is just not something that we can continue to do going forward. Um, but I, I wanted to, in the beginning of the book, um, I was un unbelievably moved by your description of the psychological aspects of hunger. And I, I think everybody thinks of hunger as like, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're miserable because your stomach hurts and you feel yourself wasting away or you see your children not thriving or whatever. But um, you, you describe it in a, in a much more um, sort of so, sociologically, psychologically astute way um, and you describe it as anguish, grief, humiliation and fear. And those are not things that immediately sprang to my mind until I read this book mm -hmm. about how to describe the impact of hunger on a society. And I was hoping you would talk a little bit more about that, because that seems to be a very profound, um, you know, it will change a society profoundly when there's a large pop population that is experiencing those emotions along yes. with the physical yes. aspects of hunger. Yes. And I, I'm really glad that is one thing that was <laughs> uh, from the original 
edition, and I wanted to keep that Mm -hmm. opening there because that's what clarifies everything for me. Because when we think of what is hunger, we think, oh, it's deficiency in a certain number of calories, or so we then we think in terms of numbers, you know, how many tons of grain do we have to ship somewhere? No, 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 no. But when we think of hunger as these very human emotions of anguish, grief, humiliation, and fear. And in that opening, we tell stories of people we've met who exemplify that anguish. I mean, a farmer in Central America, the family had to decide every year, do we keep what we need to make sure that our children survive, or do we give what the landlord is demanding of our crop to him and then risk our child's survival? I mean, that is anguish at the deepest, deepest level. And so we tell these stories, and then we ask the reader, when have you ever experienced anguish, grief, humiliation, and fear? And I think a lot of our readers, and certainly I would say, it's when I have felt powerless, powerless over my own life, powerless to protect people I love. Mm -hmm. And that is what it feels like to be hungry, that you can't even ensure that your own family can eat or that you can survive. That is an emotion. And I think anybody can relate to that terrible sense of powerlessness. And that, since we all have to eat, to survive, then if we're not and our families aren't, then it is because we feel powerless. And so in a way, our whole book is about rethinking power as Mm -hmm. down to its Latin root meaning, which is our capacity to act, our capacity, therefore, to have voice, to have some say in our own future. And it is also the very essence of what I mean and we mean by democracy itself. So we go from those stories to this core core question of what is democracy yeah I, and i love that because right now when one fears i mean certainly i very much fear that democracy is is kind of going away both yes. on the macro and on the micro um and certainly in this you know current political climate um one of the other things that you said that really uh really struck me was how how people think about hunger can be the biggest obstacle to solving it what do you mean by that Well, I began to touch on this, that I realized that from my first (laughs) late 60s decision, the best, one of the best decisions I've ever made is that, ah, food could be the thread that could, you know, unravel the complexities of economics and politics. Uh, How one thought about hunger at that time, and is still dominant, is that hunger exists. Uh, Why hunger? The answer is not enough. The answer is lack. The answer is scarcity. And if you think of the world that way, if you see the world through that lens, then you, of course, think that production is going to solve the problem. And I see that as a very linear, a very non-systems view. Mm -hmm. I've called it in the book a disassociated way of thinking, separating it out from the why. And so what I've come to is that what we have to reframe is fundamentally... The question is not how do I end hunger, but how do I end the creation of hunger? And how do I end the creation of hunger takes me to a systems view. How do the relationships of power that exist in the world, how are they created so that some people are left so powerless that they are in anguish, grief, humiliation, and fear Mm -hmm. and deprived of the nutrition they need? And so I 
I answer that by saying that we are locked into this disassociated worldview, and what is emerging in all sciences is a systems worldview in which we think in relationships. And the beautiful thing about what is emerging now with hunger, you know, to, that in the creation of hunger through agroecology and, and democracy understood as a set, set of fair power relationships, of mutual power relationships, then we can see that we can stop the creation of hunger. But only if we think in this connected worldview where we see how all the pieces connect. And it, you know what? It doesn't have to be overwhelming. What is overwhelming is when we keep looking at the wrong question, produce, produce, right. produce, and still we have one in four of the world's people who is suffering what we call nutritional deprivation. So we really grapple also with the um, with very the definition. unhelpful definition yeah. of hunger. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, let's just have a sidebar about yes, that nutritional yes. deprivation versus hunger. I mean, you know, if you're living in a low-income community in the United States and you don't have access to, to a grocery store or someplace that's providing enough, you know, uh, valuable calories as opposed to value less calories, then you're in a state of nutritional deprivation, even though you might actually be overweight. Yes, yes. And one of the most telling examples is a story that I, I received from a doctor in uh, southern India, who told me that, you know, until recently, like, um, all of his his patients were deprived, you know, they didn't have enough calories. Mm -hmm. But he said, now, virtually all of my patients, he sees 2,000 patients, very poor Indian, rural people, 2,000 a month. He said, almost all of them have enough calories, but 60% are suffering from diabetes and from heart conditions. And we know now from uh, Lancet published articles saying that uh, most non-communicable diseases are diet-related, and they're expected yeah. to be as much as 75% of all deaths by year 2030, I believe it is. But it's very soon, uh, what, whatever that year is. It's coming yeah. up very soon. So the point is that the talking simply in calories is missing the point now. Right. Two billion of us are lacking, excuse me, two billion of us are uh, deficient in at least one key nutrient. Right. And iron, for example, is implicated in one in five maternal deaths in the world, one in five. Wow, that's a staggering, absolutely staggering. Um, I wanted to go back to the um, to the idea of democracy and how the fact that hunger is not caused by food shortages, but a whole range of these societal problems. And, and at the root of that is a lack of democracy. And and you also go on to say that, that the industrial agricultural model is a threat to democracy. And I, I, I understand what you're saying on an intuitive level, but I was hoping you could mm -hmm. kind of parse that out a little bit because, mm -hmm. I mean, democracy seems ever more elusive. Right. <laughs> um, and I think that um, certainly in developed countries like our own, uh, as opposed to developing countries where there is more of an agrarian lifestyle and smaller communities, um, but in big countries like the United States, big developed countries, it, it would be hard to imagine how you would restore the balance of democracy in order to, um, you know, kind of alter or subvert the current industrial agricultural mm -hmm, model. Mm -hmm. Does well, that make let sense? me first... If you will, I, I just want to sort of make sure that people get it, yeah. that there is enough food in the world. There's more than enough That's food. So right. I just want to lay out the basics there because okay, people can remember this. I, I, I think it's just stunning that today 
compared to when I wrote Diet for a Small Planet mm-hmm. in uh, late 60s, it came out in 71, compared to that time, we now are producing per person in the world today about 40% more calories. Right. Okay, and that comes to almost twenty nine hundred calories per person per day, three to four pounds of food per person, and that already takes into account a lot of not all of but a lot of the waste, um, and we still have that. I, we still have that even though we are feeding, um, are using for industrial purposes about a third of I mean, excuse me about half of all grain produced in the world does right. not go to people, livestock so, or fuel. Yeah. Yeah. So my point is that. Even with all of this built-in built in waste, we still have 40% more than when I began looking at this yeah. and vastly more than most of us need uh, to, to thrive. So I just want to underscore that scarcity is not the cause of That's hunger. Right. And so what is? And back to your question about how we think about it, that how I think about it, and I try this on, please, all of you <laughs> listening, um, that um, because we um, think in terms of disassociated parts, it's hard for us to see that the current economic system is increasingly driven by one rule. This is what, this is what tips the scale against the end of the creation of hunger. And that is that one rule. What is it? It is highest immediate return to existing wealth. This is the core principle by which the so-called free market, which I don't believe exists, runs itself. And it was Lizzie Maggie back in the twentieth, early 20th century who taught us that by creating monopoly. The game monopoly. <laughs> right. We yeah. were supposed to learn, okay, what happens when you have this rule that, you know, every, you know, that you return wealth to the already wealthy? Hey, it ends up in the game's over and a few people have all the property, which is not so bad if in my household I got to go to bed, even though my brother won. But... <laughs> <laughs> The point is that if in today's world, if you're the loser in the Monopoly game, you're on the street or you're literally starving. So um, clearly we haven't caught on yet that this market mechanism does – if if we don't set the rules that are fair and democratic – and life-serving, then it's driven by highest return to existing wealth, which we end up in this almost incomprehensible state where about 80 people in the world control as much wealth as half the world's people. Yeah. Um, another way of saying it is half the world's people are surviving on 3% of the world's wealth, and there's a lot of ways to say it. But yes. in any case, when you, when you think about it, of course people are going I mean if if that kind of inequality of course people are going to be deprived of the power they need to feed themselves no matter how much we produce so we can go on producing more and more and more right. and still we've not solved the problem so um i think that's the the key what we're trying to get across is that that rule setting process is what democracy is all about yeah it's who makes the rules and so there's it's been this self-reinforcing process. If you have the, the the sort of automatic rule of the market is wealth returns to wealth returns to wealth, then what happens? That then infuses the political process and sets the rules in a way that even speed that up. Mm-hmm. And so Franklin Roosevelt said in a joint session to Congress, he was addressing in 1938, I believe, he said, the liberty of democracy is not safe if a people tolerate the growth of private power to the point that it is stronger than the democratic state itself. That, in its essence, is fascism. 
this was an American president telling us the truth. Bang! Yeah, I, I, I joke. <laughs> I joke to sometimes that I'm only brave enough to use the F word when I'm quoting an American president. <laughs> That's a phenomenal quote, though, Isn't Francis. That's so just, and so nails prescient. it. So prescient. So nails it. Oh, frightening. Really so frightening. that's what has happened to us. And, yes, it sure is. And the beauty, though, if I if I can use that word in this regard, is that bipartisan uh, awareness. It's not just progressives like me who get it. There are people all over the political spectrum who are enraged of, about the role of money in our political system. About 80% of us disagree with the Supreme Court decision that just amped it up. Sure, Citizens but, United. But yeah. even before 2010 and Citizens United, we were already, yeah. already oh. had huge problems in, in, this, in this regard. So um, that really is the, is the self-reinforcing pattern. Mm-hmm. And what my life's work is about right now, and I, I, I say uh, the rest of my life because I want to make this commitment to absolutely stay focused, Frankie. Um, is that um, that we we are capable? We the general public, we the ordinary citizen who wants their children and grandchildren to thrive. That we can get this, we can understand this. That when money is in control of our political system, our interest and the earth interests are defeated. Absolutely. And so, hey, we got to stop complaining and start joining together in that kind of movement that I was lucky enough to was I was fortunate enough to experience in the 1960s and 70s, and that that movement is rising right now, and it's a bipartisan movement, and I'm thrilled to be part of it. Absolutely. A democracy movement. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's the only movement that really counts. When yes. All, when it all comes down to it. And it unites it. all these issues, right? Yes, it does. All these Absolutely. issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it includes the economy. We were talking earlier here in the station about Organic Valley, uh, one of the right. large, it is the largest, I think, Democratic, uh, you know, cooperative in the food system today, yeah. or one of the, certainly one of the largest, and started out with a handful of folks I met in the 1980s in West, Western Wisconsin, and uh, they've done it, and they show us that they can stay true to their democratic principles of involving the farmers in decision making, yeah. and be hugely successful in spite of yes, in spite of the numbers, and most people don't want to admit that you can govern by d- democratic ideal as opposed to having it come down to just a few people making the decisions. It, I am the decision maker, uh, right, George right, W. Bush. Right. <laughs> we saw where that got yeah, us. Exactly. Thank you, George. Um, why don't we take a quick station break uh, and come right back with Frances Moore LaPay. We're talking about her new book, uh, co-authored with Joseph Collins. It's called um, uh, World Hunger, Ten Myths. Stay tuned. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Thank you. 
Hi, this is Dave Arnold from Cooking Issues, and I'm here to talk to you about the Museum of Food and Drink, which is finally getting a brick-and-mortar space right here in Brooklyn, New York. So the Museum of Food and Drink is opening the MOFAD Lab, our first laboratory and gallery space, where we will be putting on an exhibition called Making It or Faking It, the history of the flavor industry. And it tackles a very important uh, topic, which is how the food system got to be the way it is now uh, as a result of the intervention of the flavor industry, how that happened. Get your tickets at tickets.mofad.org to come see the first exhibit ever of the Museum. Museum of Food and Drink at the MoFad Lab, brought to you by Infinity on 62 Bayard Street. Be there or be square. Go Dave Arnold and MoFad. Um, this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Today we're talking with Francis moore LaPay, uh, the seminal author who is, uh, among other things, the author of Diet for a Small Planet, and her most recent book is World Hunger, Ten Myths. Um, so, Francis, we were, we were going to talk a little more about the free market and how the free market contributes to world hunger, and I wanted to um, also especially address uh, the impact the free market, quote unquote, on um, commodity trading, because I don't think many people really grasp uh, the impact of trading commodities and what that does to uh, worldwide hunger and world markets for food. I mean, for instance, the the um, there were riots in Egypt over the cost of rice and, you know, and that sort of led to the Arab Spring, for example. Right. So it does have even though we don't experience um, those necessarily those uh, trading issues so keenly here in other parts of the world where food is a bigger part of the income, it makes an enormous difference. So let's let's chat a little bit about um, about how free market commodity trading and so forth uh, has an impact on hunger. Yeah, I I tend to try to avoid the term free market. <laughs> yeah, but um, that's what people think but of. That is what people think of, and that is one of the myths that deserved, you know, really this little yeah. chapter on the free market to really dissect it because. That is one of the biggest obstacles to to um, solutions is that yes. we have this idea that the market works on its own. And that it's going to um, work fairly. And it's going to work fairly and benefit yeah. us all on its own, that there's something almost magical about it. Right. And it's like a spell that we're under because there is no market that's not driven by rules. And the rules that we have now in place uh, – return wealth to the highest, you know, to the wealthiest. That's right. Returns wealth to wealth, exactly. So that it is built in concentration of power that then, as we were saying earlier, then leads to the uh, infection, distortion of political decision-making, which then hurts us all because it speeds up the whole process. And, And that's exactly what happened when, because of the concentration of economic power, those players who benefit most from from the game of speculation were able to remove the kinds of rules that that protected us a bit from the too big to fail and from the, you know yes. the, the the there were rules that separated investment banking um, from the kind of speculative um, 
part trading, of it, trading, yeah. trading part of it, and those were removed. And so, <laughs> you know, the, I would always say, look, we can blame the bankers, but where were we? Where was I when that happened? That we were asleep, and we can't sleep anymore. We've got to be out there and aware of what's going on. And so, yeah. uh, one of the people who uh, I really uh, learned a lot from is Frederick Kaufman, who has studied the this surge, this just takeoff of speculation in commodity. Uh, in food commodities and agricultural yeah. commodities that really had hadn't been part of that game before, right. and how that took off and was a direct predecessor, direct contributor to this massive price food price crisis when food prices just shot up in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and created you know riots in so many parts of the world because already desperate people were just pushed over the edge. I mean, if you spend you know a third half your income on food and suddenly it, it shoots up, you're you are so desperate that you go to the street and can be incredibly hurt by that violence. Yeah. But it nonetheless, it destabilizes the world. It, it, destabilizes it has uh, countries and, and governments. Um, so he argues that in the, the the commodity prices increased more in in aggregate over that period, the five years before two thousand eight, the big mm-hmm. crisis year, than any other time in U.S. history. Wow. And um, in our book, we quote. Um, a fellow who testified before Congress, a portfolio manager, who said um, that, in fact, assets allocated to commodity index trading, including major food crops, increased 20-fold after 2003, reaching $260 billion in the March of 2008. Incredible. So that was like... No wonder, no wonder, no wonder. Yeah, and and so we, so I think that that clearly this is strong evidence. What happened in that food price crisis, mm-hmm. and then peaked again a few years later, mm-hmm. is evidence that the rules that we set and pull away if economic power is driving the the game yeah. uh, affect people all over the world and in. And increase absolute numbers of people dying from inadequate food. Increase misery, basically. Yes. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the IMF and the World Bank. Because, um, you know, we've all heard of those entities, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And they've, in fact, the World Bank is in the press a lot lately for sort of malfeasances of various types. But they were established, as I understand it, as ways to alleviate world hunger through bringing in NGOs and various different projects to, you know, show a different model of agriculture or show uh, different ways of build, building wells, whatever it was. Um, but what you you say that they advanced a model of something called structural adjustment, and you suggest that that structural adjustment has weakened governments. And I, I wanted you to go into how that worked. Well, structural adjustment, doesn't that sound like a it's chiropractor very, treatment? Yeah, it <laughs> Sounds <does>. very innocuous. <laughs> uh, just a little adjustment. Yeah. Uh, well, well this was really <laughs> comes right out of this trance of quote unquote free market. That right. if we just remove things, uh, remove from anything about government, uh, uh, remove as much as possible from control by government, uh, then 
these these economies, these poor economies, will prosper suddenly and thrive. That's suddenly a very Republican. Thrive. It's a very Republican. We're still hearing it. Yeah, take government out of it, and everybody will make enough money, and you know, trickle down economics will suddenly magically work, and right. you know, we'll all be happy. Exactly. And so this was the philosophy that then led them to say, okay, we will give you that loan, you know, African country. Uh, but we will put conditions on it. And those conditions are that you reduce your support for everything, even things like uh, um, extension officers, trainers, people who go out and work with small farmers to increase their capacities and just basic learning about the soil and water and how sure. to conserve it, all of that, that you have to cut back on that. You have to cut back on support for education so people have to pay higher school fees. So when I was in Kenya in 2000, I, I saw that this the desperate state of the schools. I mean, it was it was heartbreaking. And yeah, even imagine. to send your kids to these very inadequate schools, you had to pay fees that would make it impossible for many people to do because they said cut back the public sector, cut back the public sector on roads to help take food to market so that food could be distributed around your country, so that farmers could make income. Because if you can't sell what you produce, then you can't really thrive as of a course. farmer. Uh, everything is mere, you know, you just have to grow everything. And that a lot of places, that's not very practical. So just on all of these scores, whether it's supporting farming, supporting farm to, you know, to market, mm-hmm. education, health care was pulled back. They said pull back all of that in order to get these loans. And that was this structural adjustment. And uh, in the book, we then quote, okay, what happened by the 2000s? And th- the evidence that's been pulled together is that this directly led to the increase in inequality and to the increase in suffering overall of poverty and and uh, just the the you know the break on uh, improving agriculture and mm-hmm. so it it but it again it was like this trance the only way I can think of it is this it's it's believing is seeing we we believe this and then we see that the world a certain way and it's so hard to break free even after the evidence is in Mm -hmm. and so what we argue in this book is that yes certainly some rules can be impede can impede economic well-being but uh we also give examples from uh the best years in Brazil um, that are still benefiting many, many people of, of bringing together citizens and setting new rules around food that uh, really keep the market transparent and fair. For yeah. example, um, my daughter and I visited a city in Brazil, Belo Horizonte, in the year uh, yeah. 2000. Yeah, I noted that example, actually. I yeah, that, really that interesting. They, the way they approached it is not just not just sort of setting you know, top-down rules, but they really, the city uh, created an advisory group of people who uh, included business, yes, but also university people, hospital people who have to feed mm-hmm. their patients, uh, poor people, uh, religious people, you know, the whole uh, dimension of the society. And they put in place rules like really simple things like, okay, we have some public land uh, that's not being used, just, you know, on a street corner, say, and you, you, you know, you healthy farmer there growing healthy food, I mean, you can come in and you can have have that for virtually nothing to to sell from if you keep your food that you're selling in the price range of the poor people in these inner cities that you're 
where we're giving you this land. Hey, what a what a good deal. Yeah. And we talked to farmers who were delighted because even though the per unit price was less, that actually they were making great profits um, because they had such volume. Yeah. And so they loved it. And also another really simple thing they did, they put... In bus stops and on radio, they would announce where you could get the cheapest of the 45 basic food commodities yeah. so that to, to break that gouging system that can happen in poor communities yes, uh, where people you know, don't have necessarily a way to do uh, Well, they don't have transportation to another location where it's cheaper, and then the local guy thinks, well, I could just charge right. more. Right, charge more. So that captive put, audience, yeah. So that... You know, that did help. And so, mm-hmm. so many things. And, and so the punchline of all that that I was thrilled to learn years later after we visited, that in 12 years, this city cut the child death rate, which is one measure of well-being, certainly cut it by 73% oh in 12 gosh. years. That's incredible. That's, that in, in social change, that's got to be it's, it's, lightning yeah. speed, right? Yes, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah. Absolutely remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Um, uh you know, another thing that's happening um, that I find very alarming um, and have thought about a lot and talked about a lot on this program is um, sort of uh, the way companies are buying companies in other countries. Like, for example, the Smithfield purchase by the Chinese company, which turned out to be just kind of a, a, a shell a shell company for the government. Um, that was one that really scared the crap out of me. And then, and then the other thing that you talked about... Um, that was, I think, even more ominous are the land grabs that yes. are going on around the world in countries that are, you know, typically sort of desperate for money. Um, and so they are selling off thousands and thousands of acres to, say, the Chinese or the Soviets or the, I shouldn't say that, the Russians or, you know, t- tell us, talk yeah. a little bit about the implications yeah. of that. Because, because you are talking about systems of government that don't necessarily work in a democratic fashion and how can you you know sort of tell an african nation that's struggling for money that no you can't really you know get this big chunk of change you know for your country because you might be displacing a few villagers well yeah a few villagers yeah yeah no it is one of the most astonishing things that i learned in writing this book is mm -hmm. the Dent of it, mm. and when we hear the term land grab, you know, I, I think people would, oh, there's a little land there, a little land there, but actually, um, we estimated that combined in Africa, the combined land that has been seized, and I'm going to get into how they do it in a second, is equivalent to the area of Kenya, mm. and oh, really? um, and Oxfam America estimated that. It uh, the land in general in the world that has been grabbed in these ways uh, would be enough to feed a billion people. Mm-hmm. This is no small matter. Yeah. I also learned in this writing this book that two thirds of that is not even for food. It is for uh, what I call agrofuel to remind yeah. us that it's about agriculture. The That's common right. term is biofuel, but agrofuel. And so we hear that well, the Middle Eastern countries and China they're buying up this land because they want to secure food for themselves. That's partially true. But it is investment, a great deal of it is not even food. And then a lot of it, there, the, I tell the story from an uh, inveterate, uh, just an absolutely um, marvelous researcher, Tim Weiss, who you can, whose work you can read on the web. Tim Weiss visited Tanzania, mm-hmm. and he met people uh, that I think is not an exception, met people 
who had been displaced when the Tanzanian government gave a 99-year lease for land they'd been on for generations to a company that uh, decided they were going to make a Jatropha plantation. This is a right. this is an oil seed producing plant for agrofuel. Well, guess what? They displaced all these people, but the plantation bombed. It didn't work. Right. And so they just abandoned it, or they, they sold it to a local company. But the point is, they dis- they'd taken the land from the people. They destroyed the forest that these folks right. depended on for all sorts of things, from wood to fruits, etc. And they left these jatropa plants there. And so the the nobody ended up winning because the investment really didn't pan out so that any long-term benefit to the Tanzanian government didn't work. Yeah. And uh, these locals were really, really in misery from all their losses. Of course. So I don't know how typical that is, but I'm sure that it's... it's oh, I, I think it's very typical. It's part of the story for certain. And uh, as I say... Um, um, the reason it's going on in Africa more than other places mm-hmm. is because so my understanding is that so much of land holding in Africa is is really village customary rights to the land. And, for example, in Tanzania, they changed the ownership of that land from the village to what they call, I think, a general um, general, but basically a nationalized it. Right. So, so then the, the government, government could, owned, do so could do whatever what it wanted. wanted to do. Yeah. And in this customary rights, obviously, you don't have the legal title and you don't have, you can't afford lawyers to defend you. Right. So they are very vulnerable. And this is, as I say, you know, we're talking about now enough land in the world that Oxfam says could feed a billion people. Yeah. Well, it's certainly been the case uh, in South America as well, where the Chinese have bought up thousands and thousands of acres of uh, arable land, either to grow soy for their own pork population yes. or to grow soy for biofuel. Um, so these are this. This is not isolated. It's not no. unique to Africa, even. Um, and and governments do see, and even our own government. I mean, when the Smithfield sale went through, all I could think of was like. They own the pig, they own the pigs, and they own the profits, and we own the waste. Right. We own the environmental impact. What do, what do we get out of this? Right, right. They're using our water. They're using our grains. They're using our land to dispose the stuff on, and we we get nothing out of it. Right. But you know that was allowed to go through. The Justice Department approved the sale. It was scrutinized heavily, and and more has gone on. Brazil just bought JBS. Just bought Cargill's pork division. Same thing crazy anyway um there were six rules for life because we have to end unfortunately end up soon we don't get to talk about nafta or tpp or anything but i i um i really wanted you to go through the six rules for life because i thought they were just you know part of the solution i don't want to dwell on because one of the great things about this book is that you explode these myths it's not that there are 10 myths and that's what there is but it's you know, how, how do you solve this? How do you solve for these things? And so you, you had this lovely passage of six rules for life. So I, I wanted right. to go to that. Yeah, yeah. We really, this is a solutions book. Yeah. I want to underscore it's a that. solutions-based And book. Yeah, uh, the last chapter is all about how this, uh, what we call living democracy is mm-hmm. emerging. This is not our, oh, we wish. It is emerging. So in this chapter where I talk about rules for life, it is after I've laid out six uh, free market 
fictions, I call them. Yeah. And then I counter those with what could be and what are, with examples, not just my own wish list. And so, for example, one of the rules for life is, you're not going to be surprised, <laughs> it is removing the power of private wealth in public decision-making, yeah. that that touches everything. Yes. And we can all be part of that now because, as I say, it's a bipartisan will. So let's build that movement to do it. Yeah. And um, that's what smallplanet.org is also very much involved in now, this right. living democracy, money out of politics initiative. So smallplanet.org, and we have a field guide we're producing to that movement. Oh, good for you. Um, and the second is very simple also, that shifting, now we pay, you know, billions every year, we taxpayers, to support um, subsidized corn, subsidized soy that then goes into the high fructose corn syrup and other things that are not good for us. Just a little fact in here, the startling fact that more people are now dying in Mexico from the effects of uh, sugary soft drinks than from gun violence. So, and that's saying something in Mexico. That's saying something. <laughs> <laughs> so we could shift those billions yeah. to support uh, the kinds of things that you hear about on this fruits and radio- vegetables, fruits and vegetables, because that's they get barely any money, and and make those just right there at the front of the store yeah. and affordable to every single person. The third rule for life is to create publicly held food reserves. Hey, what a radical idea! You yeah. know, for for centuries and centuries, societies have understood that grain granaries, where we keep for lean years, is is a necessity, and we can do that today. But we are not doing it. So, if we had had global grain reserves with a fair governance over them, then that terrible crisis of 0708 could have been averted. That's right. Uh, so that's one. And then four is uh, protect from harm. Simply, how do we put in place protections from uh, now more and more evidence on the most widely used pesticide, glyphosate, which is coupled with the GMO uh, plant industry. Uh, we All sorts of uh, diseases that are now linked to the exposure, and certainly for farm workers, Absolutely. Uh, evidence that exposure to pesticides is related to uh, birth defects and all a number of other all kinds of cancers and yeah Yeah. so we don't have to wait for the general public evidence we know that it is harmful uh so protect from harm by banning as they have in europe a number of things that we are still using here five protect the right to know that this is one of the most basic foundations of democracy that people have a right to know so that we can make our own decisions and many of you listening to this will know about what's been called the dark act which is one of the most pernicious initiatives by the seed in the genetically modified seed industry to try to push through congress again because of the uh, influence of private wealth in our political system, yeah. uh, a bill that is so pernicious, so so dangerous that it would prevent states from even you know deciding people at the state level that they wanted to know uh, whether or not their foods had GMOs in them. So the right to know, and then number six is to underneath everything ensure that we all had the capacity to free ourselves from hunger. So stop the creation of hunger by setting rules that where the minimum wage is high enough so that people can afford a healthy diet and uh, job training, job opportunities for everyone. And then, of course, in every society, there are those infirmed who cannot work and making certain, absolutely sure, that they have what they need 
to uh, afford a healthy diet. So this is this is all doable. Yeah. That there are countries in the world, certainly the Scandinavian countries, which do not have the suffering uh, around lack of access to food, and they are just astonished by, for example, our infant death rate yes. is about twice the rate of what people in Scandinavia. Uh, experience and they look at us and think how barbaric that you can't, and and certainly that is one symptom of poor diet. Indeed, it is. Uh, so, so those are my six rules for life. I'm sure I could come up with others, but um, I think that, I think that you know what? So, I just realized. I bet if we had conservatives sitting here with us and really talked through such rules for life, that. There would be a lot of common ground because I think that a lot of Americans really understand that freedom is about the opportunity. Uh, It's not just freedom from. It's not just um, freedom to accumulate everything you can, but also freedom to live, freedom to express your full potential. And that is the freedom that we actually end the book with an essay on what is freedom and and and. Harken back to many of our nation's founders who defined freedom as that, you know, the, the, the expression of our innate gifts and being able to fulfill them. Well, on that note, I think we must close. And that is pure poetry. Francis Morlapay, thank you so very much for joining us today. Um, thanks to my sponsor and to my engineer, as always. Um, you can learn more about Francis Morlapay and her new book, Ten Myth, A World Hunger, Ten Myths. Um, it came out just this month from Grove Atlantic, and they have um, a website. She and her daughter, Anna, have smallplanet.org, where you can learn how to be part of this movement to reclaim our democracy. I enjoin you to do so. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening.